0: A uh, one, two three Game on Game on It's game time. Excellent Game on Game on It's game time.
1: Excellent!
0: Wargaming has now deployed World of Tanks mercenaries to console. It's out now, and the studio has come a long way since it was founded in Belarus in 1998, releasing a little tabletop project called DBA Online. It now numbers over 4,000 people working in a number of offices across the globe. And here's a fun fact. Apparently, it's the largest taxpayer in Cyprus, where its headquarters is located. One of those 4,000 people charged with keeping the company on the right caterpillar track is senior game designer Daryl Heger, and he joins us on the Game on AUS podcast. Now, so good to have you here, mate. Hello, hi. Mate, uh, before we get stuck into all the nitty-gritty and World of Tanks mercenaries being deployed to console, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do at uh, wargaming.net.
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, we have a lot of studios all over the place and the studio that's sort of responsible for doing the console product is our Chicago Baltimore studio. Uh, we're actually split between the two cities here, uh, in the U S and, um, I'm in the Chicago office and specifically my, uh, my title on the project, I guess it's technically a senior game designer, but I'm really sort of the narrative designer for the project. So, uh, what I've been working on is sort of the story and the background and the universe that, uh, the game is set in. Our company is really intense about the historicity of a lot of our things. For instance, we have uh, regional historians that actually go and because, honestly, sometimes the documentation isn't accurate enough, we actually send them out in the field to actually where they find real pieces of equipment and they'll verify that the blueprint thickness is the actual thickness of a tank armor, as an example. So they're always digging through archives and things like that. So we actually have, uh, that's how serious the company takes history. Uh, that being said i'm working on the console product and we're doing things that have story elements in them so of course that's the part that i'm working on of course. but yes we we do we do a lot of intensive research
0: so how much does the console product differ from the pc product if at all so-
1: Uh, So, first of all, uh, it's one of those weird things is that we're both called World of Tanks, so I think the immediate assumption is we're just the console port, but actually the decision was made at inception that it would actually be two separate products that use the same I guess the same data. So for instance, you know, like the tank armor thicknesses and things like that, that's that's the data that we share. And we still share the same uh, server infrastructure on the back end. But the consoles, uh, the console and the PC are basically two s- completely separate clients. And um, which, which means uh, almost everything is different in a weird way. Like all of our sort of the base information on and how physics works and all that other stuff are kind of shared on the server side. But Um, basically we built our product considering that someone is not going to be sitting right next to a monitor with a keyboard and mouse in hand but are going to be sitting on their sofa looking at a TV that might be pretty far away and have a controller in hand so every small details like how the um, tanks handle to um, render rendering details to even like FOV and things are all adjusted so Uh, We're similar to the PC product, but we're we're definitely not the same thing.
0: This is mind-blowing because never, uh, I mean, obviously I have absolutely zero experience when it comes to designing games and developing and all that sort of stuff. And I actually had no idea that there was, that that's the sort of stuff that you have to take into account, even those little things like uh, sitting in front of a keyboard and a mouse versus sitting on the couch being a few meters away from your television screen.
1: Yeah so like for instance if you look if you uh, for those of your viewers who are f- familiar with our PC product it has a v- lot of high density information on the screen and it's accessible through you know pull down menus and things like that that doesn't really work well on the console and our console gamers are slightly different and they're looking for a slightly different experience so of course we have to redesign everything so we keep all the details but we don't necessarily keep the same user interface t- and how we get get that information yeah. and also you know we focus on slightly different aspects of the gameplay yeah definitely
0: um one of the things that's been a fair bit of debate in the industry at the moment is console cross-play uh have you guys broached that subject with xbox and playstation and you know have you had that conversation yet
1: yeah, everyone loves to ask us that question um <laughs> I, I can only say that if if all the first parties would simply agree we could just turn it on yeah Yeah. i mean you know when we're doing our development work day to day uh we have all the platforms talking to each other uh so this is really just a question of all the uh i won't name names but all the uh, first party (laughs) getting together and agreeing that it's okay for uh, a specific product to go ahead and be um multi-platform so we we ask them all the time it's not like we don't think about it uh i mean we actually operate in that environment when we're developing all the time uh so that we can make sure that everything's all in alignment so it's more a question of uh getting the permission to do so (laughs) fair enough so you know everyone if 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 there's a certain you know manufacturer or, or first party that's really interested in this stuff you know and let them know that you're interested in it too i mean that's the only I can say.
0: Yep, absolutely. Trying to
1: be very political there, yeah.
0: So, uh, we've got Xbox, we've got PlayStation. Is there Mm -hmm. um, any plans to release it on Nintendo as well?
1: So, apparently, (laughs) I've actually been on record saying something about this and somehow what I said got really exaggerated so my exact words are our management is always looking at all the different platforms uh, one criteria I will say that's a little bit different for free-to-play is we have to make sure that the install base reaches a certain size and that the network support reaches a certain uh, robustness when those two conditions are met then it makes sense to make a free-to-play game on it Yeah, and so that's the kind of things we're looking for at hint, right? I guess, right? (laughs) So when those two things are in alignment, then we can, then we can pursue that. Uh, You know, usually it's one of those things where we definitely are always looking at it and we have teams evaluating it, but it's more a question of we have to make sure that the numbers work because we also have the issue of crossplay again right like we have to make sure that if we're on a new platform we're on established platforms so we know that we can get a server account up to a certain level so that the user experience is good but in with a new game and a new platform we may not immediately have enough server density and we don't have a bad experience for the users so that has to either be compensated through crossplay or an assurance that we can get enough Uh, user density to make the servers work. That's that's not the answer that a gamer wants to hear, obviously, like me as a gamer and I play other... You know, companies' products too. That's not the answer you want to hear, but that's the reality, especially for free-to-play. But that because is... we're not collecting any money up front. For right? Sure,
0: but I mean, you know, i going to be honest. Like a like as a gamer, um, I actually would rather hear answers that make complete sense. And that makes complete sense because at the end of the day, you don't want to be a developer putting out a game that um, the technology isn't there to support your game properly. Because all of the bad press and the the bad vibes and all that sort of stuff are going to come back on you, not the actually not the actual company whose platform the game is
1: on. Well, yeah, I mean, we don't like to point fingers at any of our partners, but obviously everything has to be in place or it's just really hard to work. And free to play in particular, we have to be very careful because, you know, I mean, honestly, we, you know, they have to keep the lights on. We have to keep the servers running. We have to pay ourselves, right? So um, there has to be a viable economic platform. And it's just a question of, and, and. And trust me, I mean, it's like we want to be in as many platforms as possible. Wargaming as a company has been really aggressive about putting uh, some version of tanks on almost every platform. And you can play it in uh, mobile, you can play it on PC, you can play it on console. Uh, you know, there are very few platforms that we're not out on yet. And usually those platforms, we just have to reach a certain critical mass for us to make it work.
0: Um Now before you were uh, in this particular role where you're helping to create and guide the narrative elements of World of Tanks um, and by the way for those of you watching right now we will get to World of Tanks mercenaries on console and the information there in just a moment but I just wanted to talk to you about your experience as a live producer before this was the role that you had before what you're doing now can you tell us exactly what it is that you were taking care of as a live producer things like live game health for example
1: Yes, yeah. So uh, we take that very seriously. So there's a multitude of things that we need to monitor. First of all, we have to monitor the actual health of the game and make sure that all the components are working. And um, and it's a very complicated piece you know, piece of software. You have servers and you have, we have to communicate, you know, when someone makes a decision, sometimes they're communicating with uh, the first party, which is, you know, Sony or Microsoft, or sometimes we're dealing with their own back end, or sometimes, you know, like if there's a financial transaction, for instance, we also have to deal with credit cards and everything else. So all of these things have to be working. So as live producer, my responsibility was to sort of monitor all that. On top of that, we also have a robust community, a community that loves to tell us when we're doing things right and when we're doing Things wrong, um, you know, of course. I mean, that, that's great. Actually, you know, it's really funny because people say, Wow, it must be really depressing to hear that all the time, and I go, No, actually, the worst thing to hear as a game developer is silence, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. When you have and this sounds really weird and I know some people this may actually anger some community members but when we actually get negative feedback in some ways that's encouraging to us that people care about the game and it means we have to fix things obviously or we have to find good solutions but it it tells us that people are engaged in the game enough to care.
0: Yeah.
1: And you know, I'll be honest I've worked on some games where it's just like People didn't care that it was out there, and that's really disheartening. So when people have positive feedback, it makes us feel really good. When people have negative feedback, we go, uh-oh. But it actually is also, you know, it's good news. And that's why we took it seriously. So my position as live producer was also to help monitor the community. Uh, we um, Publishing did most of the actual events with our community but because we wanted to have a tight feedback loop as a developer we set up an internal mechanism to make sure that we we find out about hot spots hopefully before they get critical right and sometimes that's that just doesn't happen but we try to do it that way so we have a very tight iteration loop going you know well some people say you know we don't think that this is right and then we immediately put our own qa staff on testing something out or checking balance or things like that and that's how that's how we operate the
0: um, I got to just say, when it comes to feedback, uh, that to the community watching right now, there are nicer ways to do feedback as well. So there is constructive ways, and there are not so constructive ways. So let's yep. all just keep that in mind when it comes to <laughs> yeah, and, you know,
1: yeah, yeah. And and honestly, just saying something sucks doesn't really help us figure out what the problem is. Yeah, and yeah. and and I, and I will say this, and I don't mean to be negative, but a lot of times we have to. Provide what people are ask, uh, what they want, not what they're asking for, which is a subtle difference. But sometimes the solution that they're looking for will actually cause other people harm, or will make the situation will actually make the game experience lesser for other people. So what we have to do is that we have to always balance all those factors. So we try to we're trying to serve the largest number of people whenever we make changes because like balance a classic example because like some people get very upset about it and then we have to check the statistics and everything else and uh, and we do keep track of it I mean like I like to say we have on record every shot that's ever been fired on any server during any battle What? Uh, that's the, that's a level of uh, detail that we have logged so, uh, so sorry,
0: sorry, hang on a sec. every shot yeah. that's ever been fired on every server ever, you have that on record. Where Where do you keep something like that?
1: That's a huge volume of information. Uh, it, it, in, some of that does expire after a while, but definitely uh, any shot that caused a death would definitely log. So we're able to generate um, exact pairings of firing uh, and uh, casualties and all this other stuff. So a lot of people will sometimes say, well, are you guys really balancing this stuff? And and I'll say, honestly, we, we make really big efforts because we have pretty exacting data. We have whole... Um, basically uh, spreadsheets and, and uh, systems set up to be constantly monitoring all of these balancing factors. And, you know, our, our lead uh, game designer our, um, is uh, Jeff Gregg, and he's actually posted some YouTube videos on our channel about the process of balancing and everything else. And I know that sometimes in the community they'll say, well, you guys are making this numbers up or something like that. And we are. We <laughs> really do I mean, it doesn't really serve us to make these numbers up and I understand yeah. why, you know, people are passionate about that. They you wanna say, Well, that's not what I see, that's not what I believe but we do try to track all of that because again, as a human I may experience a thousand battles, right? But then we may but then we have millions of battles to, to look at, yep. right? In terms yep. of looking at data. And so sometimes even though you have a thousand battles, maybe there's something weird and anomalous or maybe the way you play affects all of those things. So those are the things that we have to take into account.
0: So when you're talking about things like um, monitoring live game health, monitoring the community, obviously this is a worldwide brand in a worldwide game. So your players are in every time zone right across the globe. Does that mean that um, your team essentially doesn't get a break when it comes to monitoring things? Is there always somebody looking at at the, the, the hub, for example?
1: Sure. Uh well, we do have there is a difference between sort of the developer side. The developer side we mostly do it during our office hours, although there was a time when I was live producer when we would it was 24, uh, especially early on. That was very early on, and that was starting to wear us out. But we are an international organization. We have thousands of people working worldwide, and we do have not just the developer, but the publisher side. So that's how we kind of distribute the work out. So um, some of the other offices are also monitoring during their business hours, and that works out pretty well. That gives us coverage. When we first started, we were still trying to work out how to be a global organization to deal with a global product because on the PC side it's all done by regions So, uh, the console product was the first one where the same build would be pushed out to every user, no matter where you were. So we had to work out some of that, so so people who are with us from the very beginning probably remember some of that, but we've done our best to make sure that we're consistent across all the markets. And in terms of operations and stuff like that, now we have, you know, operation centers all over the place that are monitoring this stuff 24-7.
0: That is amazing. Absolutely incredible, the things that it takes to keep a a big thing like this going. Um, Let's turn our minds to World of Tanks Mercenaries, as we mentioned uh, at the top, and the whole reason why we're having a chat today is because it's actually come to console. Congratulations on the release, and also on the release of console. Um, Thank you very much. What can you tell us about World of Tanks Mercenaries for people who haven't had a, a chance to get their
1: hands on it yet? Sure. So basically, um, what what's happened is that we've been trying to evolve the game and develop the game specifically for the console market. And like I said, you know, our client is completely separate. Um, our content we've been sticking to the core um, PvP play, a uh, gameplay that. The PC is known for, um, but you know, reality is as a console player, we have expectations. So last year, we did what we called the war stories, and the war stories, we introduced this idea of let's create PVE and let's create narratives. So let's create stories, and so that's that's kind of that was the introduction to all of this. And we wanted to monitor what you know, basically what our community response was, and it was really positive, and that was very encouraging for us because the next step for us was to introduce some more of those elements that make it interesting and add some of those PvE elements to it and add more personality and characters. I've always said that, you know, World of Tanks, its its uh, primary characters are the tanks. There's no doubt about that, and it's still the case. However, we did find that people do react very favorably to having... Stories and imagery surrounding the crews that man these tanks, right? So, uh, you know, last year we added stories where we're actually telling stories about the people who are, who are uh, basically piloting these tanks or crewing the tanks, and um, that that gave us impetus to further develop mercenaries. I mean, honestly, the other thing that we were looking at is people want more tanks, (laughs) but when you're a historical game, there's only so many tanks that were made in that you know in that historical period, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so um what the other thing that we decided that we could do, and this was done to a certain degree in 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 history also, was you know sort of what I call the fantasy football of um of tanks, and start looking at what possible combinations of tanks because in some cases you know there were countries after the war they had surplus of certain ta- certain components, but then let's say that you know you had a lot of chassis from. Uh, leftover chassis from uh, American surplus tanks but then you needed to put a bigger gun on it so like the French did that with the AMX Chaffee and you know things like that where there's combinations and mix and matching of components so we went one step beyond and we created the mercenaries universe and the mercenaries universe is basically the idea that these are mercenaries out there and they're building tanks based on pieces that are left over from the battlefield or whatever surplus hardware they could get their hands on.
0: And this is, this is a great opportunity for a lot of it, because, I mean, I've played a fair bit of World of Tanks, and I've got a, a, a fairly consistent crew that we play with, and one of the conversations we have had from time to time would be, oh my goodness, how awesome would it be to put this gun on this tank chassis, and so on and so forth, and this obviously is that opportunity to make that uh, a reality for players. Right. Right.
1: Yeah and so we actually had, again this is a community feedback, we had a lot of community saying hey what if you guys had mercenary tanks and what if they had all these different combinations. Uh, the, biggest, the biggest sort of danger with all of that and this is why uh, you know some people said well so why can't you just freely put tank parts together well, it's also a multiplayer game, and it has to be balanced. Yeah. So obviously, uh, if I could put together the best components of, and and, and no flaws, you know, I take the very best of this and the very best of that and put it all together, and then you have a very unbalanced tank. Yeah. So what we had to do is that we had to find interesting combinations that gave these unique characteristics. Because, I mean, the truth is, although every tank is different each country kind of has a certain philosophy and things that they're good at doing, and their tanks from those countries tend to emphasize those things. And so the interesting thing now is that we can recombine them. And and there's a whole story and universe behind it, too. And so that, that came from the whole war stories part, where people were engaged and interested in these stories that um this uh
0: particular part of it the actual narrative and building the story what did you have to go and do to get out there i suppose the best way to say it would be to get your hands dirty to go and find the information to start building this sort of information and bring it all together
1: right so what happened was um we as a hint uh, like in april we kind of gave a hint to uh our users as to where we were, uh, our players as to where our story was going, we released uh, the war story called Spoils of War. And in Spoils of War, uh, we talked about basically a World War II that went on much, much longer. And the whole historical premise behind that was that um, basically 1942 kind of unfolded very differently than it did in the world that we're familiar with. Uh, In the Pacific, basically, Uh, Japan and the United States at the Battle of Midway, it wasn't nearly the decisive battle that it was historically, where basically Japan lost all of their fleet carriers, well, most of their fleet carriers. And uh, because of that, and and on the Eastern Front, basically Hitler was not nearly as aggressive, or Germany was not nearly as aggressive in their attacks on the Soviet Union, realizing that they would have a long fight ahead of them. which is a big which is a big what if and i and I understand that, but with that what if basically what happens is the war becomes very prolonged so for instance um, um, FDR decides to go with a with a Japan first instead of a Germany first strategy, and because of that he focuses all of its efforts on the Pacific War and then that delays North Africa that delays the u s opening up the second front in Europe and everything else, and so that has you know significant consequences ultimately the allies win I think that you know that the material advantage was just too great so eventually the allies win but it takes an extra three years to do it. Right
0: right so do you yourself were you a historian um, in this particular world of like you know tanks and uh, war and all that sort of stuff before you actually joined the world of tanks team did you have a natural uh, interest in it?
1: Yeah so I have one of those weird careers into the game industry. I actually started off as a college professor no in, way. in the subject of international relations, Yeah. which is basically the sort of, it's not quite pure history, but it's sort of like studying the theory behind uh, international conflict. So my specialty was international security. So it's actually like studying things like, how do wars start? And what are some of the historical precedents for how wars unfold? How does diplomacy work, and everything else? So actually, that's what I was doing. And uh, honestly, um, America overtrained their PhDs, and so I was like, I was, I was looking for a tenure track position, and I was working part time in the game industry. And then I go, well, you know, maybe working in the game industry is way more fun. So I decided <laughs> I, I, that I would take that route, and and that's kind of how I got here. So. I've always had an interest in all this stuff, and I have a bit of a background in it too, I guess. Um, uh, usually, I also was as a I'm a huge science fiction fanatic yeah and the one genre of sci-fi that i absolutely love is one of those obscure ones but it's alternative history and it's the it's the it's these book. it's a whole bunch of books that are written where they add well if one one what if if one aspect of history changed what repercussion you know but then you assume everything else proceeds logically from there yeah what are the implications of that and It's weird because one of the other big writers in there, Harry Turtledove, was also a college professor, but whatever. And so I think that there's, there's a tendency... Well, this is the interesting thing, right? Because a lot of people go, well, aren't you guys really into history? And I go, absolutely. You have to know history to change it. Absolutely, yes. And, and it's really funny because, and then I actually recently was talking to this uh, history magazine and he goes, oh, that's really right. And he goes, yeah, because I go, once you set up this interesting story, they have to know what the what the original history was to know what the difference was. Yeah, And that actually encourages even more study of things. And so that's why I focus on some like events in 1942 to talk about something that happens in 1948, because there's this whole logical progression that comes from it, and people expect that kind of, that kind of, you know, realism. So it's not that we are portraying historical events as they happened, but we are using that as sort of the influence for the stories that we tell.
0: So okay, I'm going to throw a question at you, and it's a question sure. without notice. Um, But now that I know that, you know, probably one of the conversations that you have a a fair bit with your mates um, when it comes to alternative history is what if this actually happened, right? Can you give me one example of a conversation you have had about alternative history that would completely change the course
1: of where we are sitting right now? Sure. Um, Actually, that's how we did a lot of the war stories. So uh, the classic example is, what if, for instance, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, what happens if... We were very, very close to basically all-out nuclear war. Uh And if, if there were not cool heads on both sides. There multiple instances, like for instance um, at the last minute the Soviet ships decided to not try to break the blockade. And there's now historical information that there was a Soviet commander who was ordered to retaliate if fired upon and he they thought that he was they were fired upon it was a submarine group that was being fired upon i
0: have read this story by u.s yes. ships yeah
1: yeah and what happened is that his response the problem is that he was armed with nuclear tipped torpedoes so his response could have been perceived as a nuclear attack and so he was very con- he, he was very restrained and despite the fact that it looked like he was he had been attacked by uh, the American forces. He refused to n- retaliate with a nuclear-tipped weapon because, obviously, I think that I-, I think it's pretty obvious to say that even if it was a tactical weapon and not a strategic weapon, if a nuclear weapon had been used against US forces, the US would have responded with nuclear weapons. Yeah, absolutely. That would have been a very, very different world than we're sitting in right now.
0: That is just incredible. Um, and look, you know what, I'm going to use it as as an example of why if you're watching this right now and you've been listening to this podcast and and watching the VOD and all that sort of stuff, you need to get on and play this game because as you can hear, it is developed by people with a genuine passion for this history and this particular type of uh, development. So, wow, Um, what an incredible opportunity it has been to speak to you, Daryl. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much
1: for having us here. Uh,
0: Not a problem. Um, As I mentioned, World of Tanks Mercenaries is out on console right now, and before we do let you go, uh, is there anything that you can tell us that is on the horizon that, um, that we might be seeing over the next few months?
1: So basically, when we created uh, Mercenaries, we, we've created basically this whole new nation that fits this whole storyline, so we're creating maps to match all of this, and we've already released some, and there'll be more coming, and then we've, uh, more importantly, we've released tanks as well, uh, and so we've already released uh, five, oh, plus two today, actually, so there's a total of like seven tanks out there, but we are working on more. And the other cool thing is that, if you do happen to play, you keep in mind that actually um, uh, we actually use uh, voices from every language, depending on which nation the tank is, but mercenaries because they 're from all different nations. We had a huge argument about wh- how what language they used to speak or everything else, so we decided on English, but we wanted to do English that was a little bit different, so we tried to find some of a little bit of a mix of um, uh, you know a uh, Boer, like Afrikaner, uh, uh south african yeah, yeah. english yeah. mixed in with a little bit of scottish because we found an english actor to do it <laughs> and it was just really strange but we tried to make even down to the, what the crew is saying we tried to make it like some kind of almost a pigeon uh, a pigeon or un- english that's recognizable but not so recognizable particularly yeah. i think for like in, in if you're not from a uh, south american accent is pretty unusual right so yeah yeah that's the kind of thing those are the kinds of things we're thinking about all the time and you know we put that in there so we're really committed to uh the mercenaries nation so we're going to keep releasing new content for that over over the upcoming year
0: oh and one more thing it'd be stupid of me not to ask um you obviously play the game right
1: oh yeah Uh, Are are you good uh, well, that I don't know about. Uh, it's funny. It's funny because I actually played the game before I joined the company. That was actually one reason why I decided to, to leave the company that I was previously at and and join this company is because uh, I wanted to play a tank game. And and I'll be honest, it's the only tank game that takes like all of the global fronts seriously. Like, you know, American developers tend to focus on three or four battles. I won't name which they are, but I think you can guess over and over and over again. And yeah, then yeah. you know, like we were given the permission. Like one of the scenarios that I did. For for uh, War Stories is the Battle of Romania. And I don't know uh, how many game companies would give their designers freedom if I said, you know, I went to my boss and said, look, we want to have Sherman's fighting in the Eastern Front. Let's do Battle of Romania. And they said, sure. And I'm like, you know, I mean, that that's... So I've been playing this game for a long time. I won't say that I'm great at it, but I will say I've played it a lot.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. And um, by the way, there is one other thing that I will just make mention of, because uh, this is something that I think is very important in the gaming industry, and that is um, uh, you wargamingnet actually does a lot uh, for the world of um, preserving history in the real world don't they like they actually go out of their way um, with regards to military history and have programs and stuff to preserve that history
1: right right and we work with we work with military museums all over the world and um, it was weird too because I didn't even realize it. I was in New York and I went to the Intrepid and I bought my ticket and it, there was World of Warships on the back and I said oh I didn't even realize we we're here uh, and then and we've we've uh, sponsored expeditions we've actually paid for you know like um, like trying to uh, restore uh, uh, tanks and things like that and and also to do digital preservation of some of this information and data and and again like I said we have historians that are that are their job is to go out and collect history and so those are the kinds of things that we're doing all the time.
0: Unreal, Daryl. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, mate.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much.
0: Unreal, mate. That-